0: Well, hello everybody, and welcome back to our study series on the Book of Romans. A painstaking, slow, detailed study of what could arguably be called the most important book of the New Testament. Now, that's not my opinion. That's Luther's opinion, and a whole lot of others. There was one pope, in fact, who had the Book of Romans read to him out loud every single day. I think it was one of the Leos. But I digress. Let's just jump right back into chapter 1. We went through the first 7 verses, the introduction, uh the greeting, so to speak, in St. Paul's letter to the Romans where he established who he is, what he's doing, why he's doing it. Uh basically just talking about the faith itself and, and yes, there are some individual congregational matters that he does address throughout the letter, but it is plain that it is a theological work from start to finish. That is the real reason for it. And even when he does mention congregational matters to the Roman church, it is still very theological in tone. In fact, let's go ahead and read our passage for today. Romans chapter 1 verses 8 through 15. And yes, he is addressing the Roman church in their particular circumstances, but he doesn't just leave it there. So let's start reading here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, may the words of my Lord be upon my mind, upon my lips, and upon my heart. By the way, that's a good idea to uh, to say that as your own personal benediction for uh, before you read scripture, and eh, not not that you have to do it, but that's just something I do because I ain't gonna understand the scripture unless God first enlightens me to do it, and has me get closer to the Word. So Romans chapter one, beginning in verse eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So if we try to summarize this passage by itself before going into detail, we find ourselves a little confused. St. Paul is writing to a church saying, well, I thank God through Jesus for you because of your faith, and I wish I could show up in Rome, and I really hope that this time I really get to make it so I can preach the gospel to you there. And that leads to some questions like, well, okay, you can send letters to these guys, but don't they already have a pastor of some sort? Didn't They already have a priest? After all, by this time, it was more or less widely known that, you know, St. Peter had gone off to Rome and Mark was with him as his translator. Uh, Maybe Peter had left and it was Clement that was in charge at that time, the supposed second pope, Clement I of Rome. And we get into all these thorny issues that make us wonder, what is St. Paul really getting at here? But that's only if we're looking at it through the congregational lens. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that the individual congregation is the right form of the kingdom of God here on earth. But if we just look at this through the congregational issues without paying attention to the theological things St. Paul is saying we're missing out on the point of this pericope. And every time we look at anything from the book of Romans outside of the theological lens, what he is teaching us in this part of Scripture, we're going to find ourselves kind of confused. Thankfully, looking at it in detail, we can clear it up. So verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ For all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So, after he spent seven verses talking about stuff in the the greeting, when he says first, that means, hands down, okay, now we're going to get into the bulk of the letter. Now we are going to get into what is important for me to be writing to you. And first and foremost, In his address to the Romans, St. Paul wants to say he's thankful. He thanks God through Jesus Christ for all of them because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. He thanks God, how? Through Jesus Christ. Now that can mean one of two things. Could mean that St. Paul... Praise to Jesus, thanking him for the faith of the people. Because after all, St. Paul has addressed before in the book of Philippians and elsewhere that he is a Hebrew. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. He has uh, maybe some awkward ideas or habits of uh, maybe sometimes praying to God directly when it's a written prayer or when the synagogue has that section of the worship service, but other times maybe his lips feel sealed out of reverence. It could mean something like that but it could it could also mean that God enables us through Jesus Christ to be thankful. And uh, you might look at this and you might go well why dude why are you bringing this up This tiny little piece here well because it refers most likely to what is going to be called the new obedience. We mentioned this last week in uh, the first pericope, verses 1 through 7, when he says that he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, or what we Lutherans call the new obedience, for the sake of his name among all the nations. St. Paul is no different. He relates to the people that he's writing to. So when it comes to the new obedience and the obedience of faith, we have to ask, what's that faith in? You're not a Christian if you don't have that faith in Jesus Christ. And I do believe that the commands to be grateful, the commands out there to express gratitude to our Lord, do originate when it comes to us being able to actually do that through Jesus Christ. Through a gospel heart. Think about it this way. If you have a tyrannical, awful parent. They put a roof over your head, sure. They can not only put a roof over your head, but maybe they, maybe they feed you. You are adequately nourished by your parent. But your interactions with them are just them yelling at you and threatening punishment against you. And they command you to be grateful for all that they do for you. I would wonder whether your gratitude is going to be full. Is it going to be a legitimate gratitude? I kind of doubt it. Sure, you may actually be thankful that you're not one of the... You know, the starving children in Africa. That's how my parents put it, you know. There's kids out there in Africa that would just love to live in the house you live in. That would just love to have the food you have. But, well, my parents, you know, they weren't bad. If they were the kind of parent that just screams at me and throws stuff at me and attacks me and makes me feel terrible about myself all the stinking time, I might say thank you. I might recognize in my head that, hey, yes, I am being adequately prepared for, therefore I say thank you, but am I going to feel grateful? When it comes to the law, which does teach us that God gives us our daily bread, but it also accuses us, we're not likely to have that kind of gratitude from the heart. We have gratitude from the head. So St. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. When we say that through Jesus Christ, here we can go to our interlinear here in verse 8. And that's uh, dia, Strong's number 1223. It's uh, the channel of an act. It is an explanatory word. He could not thank God through himself through our own sinful flesh. But instead, now he has the faith in Jesus through whom we can thank God with an earnest heart. And he thanks God for everyone addressed in the Roman church. Why? For precisely the same thing that enables St. Paul to be grateful. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, faith is going to be an interesting term here. Because, well, a whole lot of people don't understand it. So the actual Greek word for faith that St. Paul uses here is uh, pistis. Or, yeah, pistis, with the emphasis on the first iota. It's Strong's 4102, if you want to do a word study on it. For all students of the word, biblehub.com is your friend. Just just putting it out there. <laughs> you can look up all sorts of Greek vocabulary words here. And from biblehub.com backslash Greek backslash 4102.htm. 4102, pistis, it's a feminine noun, which uh, the it, definition properly is faith or faithfulness, But the usage is often used to denote faith, belief, trust, confidence, fidelity, or faithfulness. So the Helps Word Studies on here says, you know, faith is always a gift from God and never something that can be produced by people. In short, for the believer, is God, uh, God's divine persuasion. Faith is God's divine persuasion, and therefore distinct from human belief or mere confidence, yet involving it now that's a it's a great little sermonizing of the term that yes god does grant faith that's a good theological point but we have to ask what kind of faith is saint paul talking about because other greek sources will use the word pistis for belief faith or confidence or faithfulness but it was actually the the roman catholic church that gave us a pretty good delineation on the kinds of faith, at least as it portrays, or pertains to Christianity for us to pay attention to. There is uh, notitia, census, and fiducia, or fiducia. Notitia is the kind of faith that is mere mental knowledge of something. An individual might know what Christians believe. That's notitia. It's not really faith. It's just uh, head knowledge that this is the case. Then there is a census. A census is the agreement with that position. Somebody might know what the Christian faith proclaims, what the gospel says, and say in their head, yes, as a matter of fact, um, I do concur that Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose from the dead. Now, notitia is not salvific because somebody doesn't have to agree with the fact as stated for the faith. A census itself as well does not save. Why? Because everybody, in some sense, has knowledge of God, as we will see later on in chapter 1. But in addition to that, not just every human being. St. James says in James chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons believe and shudder. In James chapter 2, verse 19, when he says even demons believe, that verb he's using is uh, pistuosin, which is the verb form of pistis, faith. Demons, by their nature, by the fact that they know who God is, and a whole lot of them, if not all of them, have even seen God face to face before the rebellion of Lucifer and his angels, they have faith. And you wouldn't say that it's notitia. They they can't deny the truth of Holy Scripture. It's a census. They concur with it. They say that this is the truth. They might lie about it, but they know it's the case. So it is fiducia, 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 however I'm supposed to say it, that third kind of faith, which is not just notitia. It is not just a census It isn't just knowing something in your head or maybe even saying that this is true. It is trust. It is a trust that says Jesus is my Savior. I love my God because he saved me and I am relying on him for the promises of the gospel. That's the kind of faith St. Paul is talking about through most of the book of Romans. Nine times out of ten, whenever he brings this up, when he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, in verse 8, he's talking about phytosia. He's talking about that kind of faith, which justifies that kind of faith, which God sees as righteousness. And he says that the Romans' faith is proclaimed in all the world. Christians everywhere the Lutheran Study Bible says in their commentary, knew of their brothers and sisters in Rome. I I think this works on two levels, though. When St. Paul says, because your faith, your pistis, or your fiducia, is proclaimed in all the world, I think on the one hand, yes, on one level, in the first century, yeah, Christians everywhere in the known world at the time, they knew, hey, Rome is a big deal. St. Peter was there. St. Mark was there. Um, you know, St. Clement is over there running the show right now. And, man, they got some great leadership. And they have, they have a strong faith on account of that. That could very well be the case. But also keep in mind this is Scripture. Christians have been reading the book of Romans for 2,000 years. I I almost wonder if St. Paul was writing a self-fulfilling prophecy there because he's writing something to the Roman church and that by its nature proclaims the faith of the Roman church to everybody that reads it pretty nifty when you think about it because it is more so proclaimed now the faith of the Roman church than it was in Paul's day unless we think that this is some sort of look at how impressive these people are type of deal. We really should look at the the grammar here and it says your faith, not because of how faithful you people are. The Roman church, it's their faith that is the thing here. After all, again, being Lutheran, the book of Romans is a huge deal, and the kind of faith that St. Paul saw in them is the kind of faith that I want to have. So we move on here into verse 9. For, he thanks God because of their faith, for, or therefore. God is my witness. The for is there to say, because God is my witness... Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So St. Paul is thankful to God through Jesus Christ for their faith. Why? Because he's always praying for them for their well-being and that he can see them so he, he can see the fruits of the labor of the apostles and see this congregation that loves jesus that loves god's word and god he says is saint paul's witness just in case anybody had any questions he really does mean this and god can attest That without ceasing, he's mentioning them, the Roman church, always in his prayers. What is this getting at? St. Paul is saying, I'm thankful to hear about your faith. I am so happy to hear about where you are right now in your relationship with God. Because I've been praying for you. And I've been wanting to visit you. And that's been delayed. I haven't been able to do that yet. But at the very least, I know that you are a faithful church. Now, another interesting thing. He says, For God is my witness, in verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. In the gospel of his Son. If we go back to our interlinear here, again, another wonderful resource you can find on Bible. Isn't it cool that this stuff is out here for free? (laughs) Uh, when we look at a uh, proton, man, Eucharisto, Tatio, Modia, Jesu Christu, Peripanton, Human, Hothe in pistis, Human, Carangeletai, in holoto Kosmo, that's verse eight. But we get back here. Witness for my is God. Greek grammar is weird, guys. Whom I serve, N. Epsilon nu, E N. That's in, in, his spirit, in, the gospel of the Son. This ties again into the new obedience. If Saint Paul was not in the gospel of the only begotten Son of God. If he was not living in that gospel reality, could he serve God with his spirit? Would he serve God with his spirit? I doubt that. Remember, the the new obedience is a huge part of what St. Paul writes about, especially once we get to uh, to chapter 6 here why do Christians do good works? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we give to charity? Why do we pray for each other? Why do we help each other move from one house to another? Why do we sign up to to get zero pay just to play an instrument at the worship team? It's not in order to be a Christian. I think Chris Roseborough puts this pretty well. Christians do good works because they are Christians. And St. Paul here, continuously in his, in his letter, he relates to all other believers when he talks about the obedience of faith in verse 5. And then he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that I am thankful to God. And then he says, Who, my God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, In the gospel of his son. St. Paul is well aware and applying to himself the fact that believers in Jesus serve God and obey God and we love his law out of gratitude, out of a renewal of our spirit. And he, he says that with my spirit. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son well what is that word spirit how what does he mean when he says he serves god with his spirit well it is pneumati or wind breath spirit in part when we say a breath that can be speech but saint paul is really getting at the idea of his spirit he is working for god spiritually Whenever you have a, a term like this or a phrase in the Bible that's kind of hard to, to parse out what they mean by that, we can just look at the nearby verses and see what he means. So, let's just cut out a clause real quick. For God is, Verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Skip that clause. Then verse 10, always in my prayers. Prayer is part of spiritual service. That's just a fact. Now, St. Paul obviously did with his spirit, with his breath, with his life, serve our God. More than just in prayer. But prayer itself is a kind of spiritual gift. It is a service for other believers. Every time you ask somebody, could you pray for me? hey, would you keep me in your prayers? You're asking them to do something for you. Uh, Maybe we, in our carnal minds, we think about this as getting God's attention. True, we're getting God's attention with our intentions to hopefully uh, bring back a, a result that God will answer that prayers. For God, there's a value in the asking that transforms us but saint paul here connecting his service in his spirit you know serving with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i mention you always in my prayers he's saying i've been praying for you and that can be a real labor if you have the chance to go to a monastery or to talk to a roman catholic or eastern orthodox priest that maybe spent some time in a monastery you just ask them, and yep, they will tell you. Prayer can be work. Prayer can be service. When you're up at three in the morning for some like com- like super early vespers service or something like that, you are there doing something. And for some people, then maybe they're grumbling because when they go to church, oh, it just feels like so much work. Oh, it just takes out so much of my energy. I got to have that uh, sacred Sunday nap after church cuz I just I'm beat. It sounds like they're grumbling but they have a point. <laughs> Especially if you go to a liturgical church uh, or a uh, a church where there is multiple languages so everybody says the Our Father first in English and then in German and then in I don't know a Lithuanian dialect or something like that. There's a sense where everybody is laboring. Now, he says that, though, not to toot his own horn and say, what a great worker am I. My goodness, I am just burnt out from all this prayer labor I've been doing. No, he, when he says, God is my witness, he's trying to reassure the readers in the Roman church that he means what he says. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's been asking, God, in in your will, may I now please visit these Romans. I really want to see them. Really, really, really earnestly want to see them. Now, if we ask why he wants to see them, he answers it. In verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And here the Pentecostals, their their ears perk up and they hear, Spiritual gift? Huh? Ch- ch- charisma? Charisma? why yes in fact in verse 11 um i do believe he uses it the word yes charisma and they think is this uh, saint paul teaching them how to speak in tongues is this saint paul advancing their prophecy superpowers or something or giving them laying on hands treatment no not really again every time and and this is one of the beauties of the book of romans The the grammar in this book is so specific. St. Paul goes all out in being very, very detailed, very, very thorough in explaining what he means, even without having to say the words, uh, just like our small catechism, what does this mean, and then answering it. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you so the purpose of this spiritual gift is strength and then he explains in verse 12 that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each others faith both yours and mine now he's not saying so that we can encourage each other the same way that you encourage your friend when they're like oh man i i, I didn't get the job I applied for it. I did my best in my, uh, in, in my application here. And I, I thought I did so good in the interview. And then you encourage him and go, hey, man, it's okay. You know what? Maybe you got a, a reference from it. It's not that kind of encouraging. I, I do believe there is a kind of presence when faithful believers are together. That kind of fellowship just refreshes you. And it strengthens you, it builds you up. So when he says, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, he's not saying that we may encourage each other, but that we may be passive, mutually encouraged. Just by being around each other, it is a spiritual gift. God is the one working between St. Paul and the Roman church, in this hypothetical visit that he wants to do. Now, with that being said, that kind of fellowship, if it is a spiritual gift, it comes from the Holy Spirit, the the kind of fellowship that we as Christians desire to have with one another. I mean, haven't you ever just felt so good being around somebody you knew you could trust that shared all of your opinions and worldviews and stuff? That you could be a little bit more honest and open and you don't have to self-censor. You don't have to be afraid. That's the kind of refreshment, strengthening, edifying, reinforcing everything about being a Christian there. That's what St. Paul is talking about. And then in this age, by the way, it'd be a very good thing for us to seek that out and to pray for that too. So we can have the same kind of fellowship with like-minded people on our own. But continuing on here. I want you to know, brothers, he says in verse 13, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So chances are, when he says, I I want you to know, I've I've been trying to show up. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. But I want to show up not only for the spiritual gift of uh, fellowship here, our mutual encouragement in the faith, but also so that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, he's an evangelist. St. Paul is an apostle, but he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is trying his best to uh, to win some more. And that might sound silly at first. I mean, doesn't the church in Rome already have their own missionary activity? Kind of. During this time, the church is small and persecuted. Uh, we already mentioned last week that This could be around the time that Suetonius uh, records that the emperor had like kicked the Jews out of Rome because there was always these fights about Jesus. And I wonder if St. Paul has an eye to that of going, well, okay, that means that there's Gentiles here that don't believe and the church is now less capable of evangelizing to them. That could very well be what he's referring to when he says to reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. There's the Romans there, but there's other kinds of Gentile. So in verse 14, he specifies a little, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, if you, if you want to know about the whole Greeks versus barbarians thing, you got to consider Hellenistic culture here to the Greeks, they were the pinnacle of civilization. You want to be cultured? You want to be smart? You got to be Greek, or you got to speak Greek at least. If you didn't have the fortunate blessing of being born Greek, well, golly, maybe you could get close if you just learned Greek. And they have a point, by the way, because Koine Greek is very, very, very difficult to learn. It's got like 20 verb tenses, and your, your nouns are more heavily declined there's a declension system where you have to conjugate your nouns like you conjugate your verbs and goodness gracious it's a nightmare no wonder they produced so many philosophers their language demands it <laughs> but for them if you were just a just a roman if you just spoke latin or if you were a germanic that spoke in that the greeks would say that you know what? your language just sounds like blah 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 or to them Bar, 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 bar. Hence the term barbarians. And so St. Paul is saying, yeah, well, I, I got to preach to everybody. Uh, the wise and the foolish. I got to preach to everybody and I, I want to bring the gospel to them. So when he says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There, there's a double layer there too. Because on the one hand, when we look at his evangelistic purpose here, wanting to reap a harvest, absolutely, he wants to do that, he wants to reach even more souls, give the church a little bit of help. He wants to see the transforming work of the gospel in as many people as he can among the Gentiles for the glory of God the Father. But also there's, you know, when he talks about that mutual encouragement, that building up of strength in Christian fellowship with people who believe together the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's more than just preaching the gospel to non-believers. In Romans chapter 10, I'm going to be skipping ahead a little bit here, St. Paul writes in the 17th verse, Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He would not just be preaching the gospel to non-believers. Hearing the gospel is not a one-and-done thing for your soul. We have to hear it more than once, often, frequently, every single Sunday, every morning if we can. Because hearing God's word, his sweet promise of eternal life on account of Jesus Christ, is so beneficial for us. So I think St. Paul is referring to the unevangelized, when, especially when he says, I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. His comparison of Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish, is saying both to Christians who are figuratively Greek, figuratively cultured and enlightened by the Word of God, but also to those foolish who've never heard it before. Or maybe they've been stubbornly rejecting it, and they just, they need to hear it one more time. So there's, there's a kind of a double understanding there that I think St. Paul is getting it both there. In this Pericope, Romans 1 verses 8 through 15, he's saying, He relates to the Roman church. He thanks God through Jesus Christ for their faith, their fiducia that is proclaimed in all the world. All the believers know about it, and everybody that reads the book of Romans is going to know about it. And he's thankful because he's been praying for them on account of his inability to just show up at Rome for the sake of giving the spiritual gift that strengthens them and him. Christian fellowship and the strengthening of our faith found in hearing the pure words of the gospel. But he would, he doesn't want to just leave it there. He also wants to preach to the barbarians, to those who are not part of God's holy Israel, the church. All right, and that's a, a better summary than when we first read this passage, having a little bit harder of a time understanding it. But we have some time here, so let's go ahead and take a look at verses 16 and 17. Uh, The rest of chapter 1, starting in verse 18, that's going to be a huge recording in and of itself that we'll have to get to next week. But Romans 1, uh, verses 16 through 17 writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A little bit more of the congregational matters peeks out of these two verses. And we'll get to that in a moment. But in verse 16 he says, For. So when he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel. His desire to preach is helped by the fact that he is not gun shy about preaching the gospel and bringing it to those who have never heard it before. And he's not gun shy about preaching to the choir. He wants to do it. Why? Because it is efficacious. He says it is the Power of God, and I'm sure at this point you remember uh, your pastor at some point saying, Do you know what that Greek word is for power? Dunamis. Well, okay, what, what does Dunamis mean? Well, it's the same word for dynamite. They're right, uh, 1411, Strong's number 1411. Dunamis, which means uh, power, might, or strength, and it doesn't have to necessarily mean explosive power, like we think of for the word dynamite, some substance that just blows up. Saint Paul is talking about the efficaciousness, the ability of the God of God through the gospel to save people. It is the the gospel is the power of God for what? For salvation to everyone who believes. on tea. That faith comes back in. This faith theme comes in. So he says, I'm not gun shy because I know this works. I know that God's gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is efficacious. It inspires faith for the salvation of all who hear. So I'm not afraid to talk about it. I know it does what God says it does. People are going to believe. They're going to be saved. It's great. And then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, in verse 14, when talking about that, I kind of compared the Greeks and the barbarians to the, the church and the non believers. Because after all, St. Paul wants to preach to both those in Rome at the Roman church as well as non-believers. He also means ethnically. But here is the first time that we have kind of a verified account of the word Greek being used more or less interchangeably with Gentile. So you might as well write to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Why the Jew first? Well, in part because at this time in first century AD, Jews had an advantage when it came to hearing the gospel. At least so it's supposed to be. When we read in the first few verses of Romans chapter 1, during the greeting, he said... Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the Gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. The Jews had that they grew up in the synagogues, hearing the law, hearing the prophets they are They have this advantage when it comes to hearing the Gospel, or at least they should have that advantage in being familiar with the source material that in the Old Testament promises and confirms everything that St. Paul tells them. So he says to the Jew first, not because there's some sort of racial superiority, uh, that, you know, hey, first dibs for the Jews because they're the chosen people, but more so because they had a background, more of a foundational understanding of how all this is supposed to work. They knew that there was supposed to be a Messiah that shows up and saves them. The Greeks, or the Gentiles, didn't have that. And they didn't have the advantage we have of 2,000 years of church history hearing about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So evangelizing to Greeks is always really, really hard. Yes, it's hard for St. Paul to go into a synagogue, as we see in the book of Acts. He would, he would go to the synagogue and start proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And Some Jews maybe want to hear a bit more. Some of them maybe even believe, but a whole lot of them go, Nah, pfft, smell you later. I don't want none of that. For the Greeks, it was even harder. A great example of this would be Paul's attempt to preach at the Areopagus, or what's called Mars Hill. Um... Let's go ahead and read this here. Paul addresses the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. and keeping our finger here in Romans 1. St. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. St. Paul tries to preach this sermon, and it's difficult for him because he can't just say, hey guys, look at what the Old Testament says, and i, I, I got to show you Jesus, the one that the prophets promised, he's the one that fulfills all these prophecies, He can't do that for the Gentiles. He can't do that for these uh, philosophers here in Athens and the Areopagus that are just talking about philosophy. So instead he has to proclaim a God that they don't know, kind of rebuff their practice of idolatry and their statues and their temples everywhere and say like, okay, there's a coming judgment from the God who created everything, who doesn't have to live in your temples. This is the real God. And by the way, he sent someone and that person died and rose from the dead, he's given us assurance of all this truth because of that rising from the dead. He has to do this with people who are basically blank slates. Uh, Blank slates with a little bit of the the deck stacked against St. Paul because they're all raised with, you know, pagan Hellenistic philosophy. So their response in verse 32 of Acts 17 Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the vast majority of them having zero understanding of what on earth a Christianity is, or uh, whether or not a resurrection could even happen... Most of them just kind of go pish posh, this is ridiculous, what are you you talking about, get out of my face. St. Paul has to leave, while some of them are like, well, I have an open mind, I'm willing to listen to you more. When St. Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, I really do believe that that's what he's referring to. People who know better, people who have a foundation in the scriptures as they had been written up until that point, versus people who have zero frame of reference and zero familiarity with what is being proclaimed. It's an easier job. But St. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. As he says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He had to figure this out first. But continuing on to verse 16, he, in spite of the difficulties of preaching to Gentiles during this time, we can't forget he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel works. And I know it does what it says it's going to do, what God intends he accomplishes. To the Jew first, that do have that foundation, and also to the Greek who doesn't have that foundation. Verse 17, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's unpack that. So, what does all this mean? The gospel, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God. That's where God's righteousness is revealed. Now, it's not our righteousness, and the gospel is not equated with God's righteousness. But God demonstrates his kindness and his mercy. And the fact that he satisfied his own justice by the death of his son on the cross for us. Now, when we see righteousness there, the the word righteousness, it's a dikaiosine or from dikaios. It's where we get justification. God... His rightness, his being justified, his goodness is shown in the gospel. Now it says it's revealed from faith for faith. If you ever take a look at The Bondage of the Will or other books that talk about the inspiration of faith, faith is a gift and faith itself inspires in us the ability to put our faith in the gospel. It is for the purpose of faith is to receive in faith the words of the gospel. If I'm making sense here, I cannot, by my own reasoning or my own power, accept the gospel. I can hardly accept the law. And even then, it's just self-righteous delusion if I'm, if I'm trying to do that. So St. Paul says here that the righteousness of God is revealed From the faith that we are given, for faith that receives the gospel. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that term, uh, that's a citation of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. But that term here is basically the thesis statement of all of Romans. God's righteousness is revealed from the faith that he grants us. For the faith that receives the gospel. And it is that fiducia, that accepting, reliant, dependent faith that according to God declares us righteous. So as we close up here, let's go ahead and go to Habakkuk here to make sure that we have the sense of, uh, of what that verse is really getting at. In case somebody says, well, how do we know St. Paul didn't just take that out of context. (laughs) Uh, Habakkuk, the prophet writes, and this is after Habakkuk has been informed of, uh, he complains to God about how bad things are in Judah. He complains about how unrighteous everybody is. And God replies to him. So Habakkuk chapter two, starting in verse two, the Lord answered me. God informs Habakkuk. Um, yeah, by the way, uh, you're complaining about the unrighteousness of Judah. I agree with you. They're being pretty unrighteous. So I'm sending in the Babylonians. They're going into exile. by. And Habakkuk looks up and goes, the Babylonians? God, they're even worse than we are. What's going on here? This is insane. To which God replies, well, this is going to happen. But yeah, the the Babylonians, it says in verse 4, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright. You're right. He's wicked. But let's talk about righteousness for a second. The righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk, you are complaining about this, but I want you to trust in me for your salvation. You can trust me. You can put your faith in me, and that's what's going to make you righteous. Not whether your nation is full of good people or not, or whether their their behavior is the best, but it is by faith that I will declare you righteous. So go with me. In St. Paul, he looks at that and he goes, that is an extremely powerful statement. So I'm going to write a whole letter to the Romans, making that the thesis statement of the entire book. <laughs> the righteous shall live not by their works, not by their fruit, not by their own power, not by looking the best or feeling the most holy or being the holiest, and not by their blood, but by their faith. And he gets the the fact that he talks incessantly about that kind of faith, that trust in God for salvation, reminds us as Christians... Yes, the gospel is powerful. God's word is powerful for inspiring us to have that faith, for implanting that faith in us, and for that faith to receive the faith that we need in the gospel by which God declares us righteous. But we've got to make sure it's not demon faith, like St. James describes in James chapter 2.19. We're talking about phytosia. And Martin Luther, somewhere, I forgot exactly where he said it or when he said it, but he said something along the lines of, Jesus Christ is worthless until he becomes your Christ. A savior is of no value to you until he becomes your savior. When you can say Jesus Christ is my Jesus Christ he is my savior. He I belong to him. He is the one that I identify with. He is the one that I have my loyalty to. He is the one I'm putting my trust in. Then you have saving faith in him. And that is the kind of faith that's going to inspire so much more of that obedience based on gratitude, that new obedience than any other means of producing righteous deeds. Catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.